The Hamlet Podcast, episode 108. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Henrity. I think one of the things that makes this such an exciting play is the way that we are continually surprised by what Shakespeare chooses to show us next. We've had the performance of the murder of Gonzago designed to trick Claudius into revealing his guilt. It has happened, but now Hamlet has turned his attention to his mother. On his way to see her, Shakespeare gives him a prime opportunity to kill Claudius, and Hamlet determines the course of the rest of his story by not doing so. The tension is building constantly, and so when Hamlet thinks he hears someone behind the curtain in Gertrude's private chambers, it's not really madness in him to assume that it could be Claudius. And so he stabs through the curtain. And then, even more startling, he continues haranguing his mother as the body starts to go cold on the floor. Hamlet is finally letting out all of his frustration at Gertrude, having so easily replaced his father. The murder seems almost secondary to the idea of her having been so quick to remarry in what, we must never forget, could be construed as incest. Gertrude is getting the full force of her intelligent, passionate son's horror and disappointment at her actions. We all have our moments of lecturing our parents when they embarrass us, and indeed, it is a parent's cross to bear to have to listen to their children when they decide that they know better. But Gertrude here is being reduced to almost to ashes in the heat of Hamlet's fury. He has reached a crescendo as he cries, Shame, where is thy blush? And he continues, Rebellious hell, if thou canst mutin in a matron's bones to flaming youth, let virtue be as wax and melt in her own fire. Proclaim no shame when the compulsive ardour gives the charge, since frost itself is actively doth burn and reason panders will. Hamlet is swirling here in the idea of how lust is a human condition that is intrinsically rebellious. Laertes obviously learned the same thing in Elsinore, since he made a very similar comment all the way back in Act 1 before he left for Paris. Laertes was telling Ophelia to be aware of it, since human passions are so volatile they can lead us astray even when there's no particular temptation nearby. Hamlet, no surprise, takes it further. He's just asked where shame has gone, if his mother is marrying for lust. Rebellious hell, he cries. This rebellious passion, this hellish human condition, if it is strong enough to stir up mutiny or more rebellion in a matron's bones, well then, to flaming youth, virtue will be like wax and it will melt away in its fire. Yet again, Hamlet is referring to his mother's age, here saying that if lust can appear in the bones of a matron as old as she is, then young people's virtue or chastity will melt away like candle wax in the heat of their passions. His next line is even more sour, as he says, Proclaim no shame when the compulsive ardour gives the charge, since frost itself as actively doth burn and reason panders will. He's being really sarcastic, suggesting that surely there can be no shame in lustful behaviour when compulsive ardour, or burning, uncontrollable desires, take charge. Why not? Why should anyone be ashamed when Frost itself, probably the rudest way to refer to his middle-aged mother, she's not that cold, burns just as actively as the aforementioned flaming youth? Not only that, he says, but also reason panders will. His mother, and everyone else of course, should know better, but her reason is succumbing to her will. 
Some texts say reason pardons will, which is a little tamer, but panders, with its associations of lust and particularly of prostitution, is far more forceful. Hamlet has certainly gotten through to Gertrude now, and she interrupts him. O oh, Hamlet, speak no more. Thou turnst mine eyes into my very soul, and there I see such black and grained spots as will not leave their tinct. Gertrude is alarmed at what Hamlet is saying, that he is making her look inside herself so deeply that she's seeing into her very soul, and there she's seeing such black and grained spots as will not leave their tinct. Bad enough that Hamlet is forcing her to intolerable levels of shame and then introspection, but Gertrude is seeing stains on her soul, as if she knows she's done wrong and she's permanently stained by them. She's begging him to speak no more, but he's on a roll. As in the very best scenes and arguments in blank verse, Shakespeare splits metrical lines between characters so that they share the rhythm. On the show notes for this week's text, I lay it out very clearly so you can see how he does it. The rhythmic transfer goes, as will not leave their tinct, nay, but to live in the rank sweat of an enseamed bed, stewed in corruption, honeying and making love over the nasty sty. Here Gertrude interrupts him again, but it's meaty enough what Hamlet's just said, that we should carve up what he's saying. Hamlet, we must bear in mind, is talking to, or shouting at, his mother. Here he's going into sordid details of her sex life, asking how she can be shameless enough to live in the rank sweat of an enseamed bed. We discussed rank earlier when Claudius said his offence was rank, and Shakespeare brings that back into our ears here. Just a little reminder of rank and Claudius as he's talking to Gertrude, who is his wife. The rank sweat of a bed soaked with semen or greased with sweat and animal fat. Hamlet is describing his mother's incestuous sexual activity in the most carnal imagery possible. He continues that she's living in this bed, no longer a couch for luxury or damned incest, as his father called it, stewed in corruption. This is a great turn of phrase in and of itself, but it gets even nastier when you know, as the audience would have, that brothels were known collectively as the stews. Gertrude is no better than a whore, stewed in corruption, honeying and making love over the nasty sty. Honeying is another brilliant word. Hamlet has turned it into a verb, picturing the sweaty intimacy of whatever sweet or honeyed nothings his mother and his uncle are whispering while they make love in this pigsty. It's quite a small little bit of a speech, but Hamlet is packing a ferocious punch. Not only that... The reference to the sty doesn't just convey his contemptuous suggestion that they are at it like pigs, but it also echoes the original story of Amleth, the source for Hamlet, who dismembered the body of the Polonius figure in that version and fed it to the pigs in his sty. We must understand just how brutally Hamlet is attacking Gertrude here, and it is entirely understandable that she interrupts him again. Oh, speak to me no more. These words like daggers enter in mine ears. No more, sweet Hamlet. Yet again, staying on message, we have murder weapons and ears. Knowingly or not, Gertrude is echoing her first husband's death as she speaks here. Hamlet's words are like daggers as they reach her ears. She begs her sweet Hamlet to stop. He's not finished yet. 
There's an almost unconscious leap here from the dagger entering her ears to Hamlet's move to discussing Claudius, because the first word he says is, a murderer. The speech goes, a murderer and a villain, a slave that is not twentieth part the tithe of your precedent lord, a vice of kings, a cutpurse of the empire and the rule, that from a shelf the precious diadem stole and put it in his pocket. Here it is. Hamlet is finally telling his mother what he thinks of the new king. He's a murderer and a villain, as we've been hearing since early on, but now Hamlet has proof of it. Claudius is, in his eyes, a slave, not worth the twentieth part of the tributes or tithes paid to the lord she had before Claudius. Some editions write that he's not a twentieth of the kith of her precedent lord. In other words, that he's not a bit like him. Claudius is a vice of kings, an example of wickedness personified. Vice was a figure that sometimes appeared in medieval morality plays as well, perhaps even the same kind of an actor or the same bombastic performance in Claudius. He's also a cut purse of the empire and the rule, a common pickpocket who has got his greedy hands on the empire and the rule. This is yet another example of Hendiadus, one image created from two distinct elements. Hamlet portrays Claudius's taking of the crown very specifically. He took the precious diadem from a shelf, so he had to reach upwards from his lowly position to get his hands on it. And then, like a burglar, he put it in his pocket. Claudius is in no way worthy of the throne or the queen. He's sexually depraved. We already know that he's a bit of a drunk. He's not even 5% the man his brother was. And now he's also characterised as a common thief. Bad on all counts. Poor Gertrude is at her wit's end and cries again, no more. Hamlet has even more to say. He continues his anti-Claudius diatribe and calls him a king of shreds and patches. There's an inference here that the king is a fool, since fools were traditionally dressed in motley, which was a fabric made up of a variety of colours, perhaps woven together with patches and shreds of other fabrics. A beast, a murderer, a thief, and now a fool. But before he can continue the thought, Hamlet is cut off because Shakespeare has yet another surprise for us, one more startling and dramatic than we've had for quite a while. And, you guessed it, we'll hold off here and save it for the next episode. As I mentioned, I'll be sure to lay out the text for this week's portion on the website so that you can see very clearly how Shakespeare divides the lines between mother and son. It's not an exact science, and indeed Hamlet's lines here tumble along with a great many extra syllables, lots of feminine endings, showing how worked up he is. So be sure to check it out in the show notes section at the website, thehamletpodcast.com. Thank you as always for listening, and I'll speak to you next time.